HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by listeners like you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Somerset County Tourism. Hear stories from local brewers and distillers from the New Jersey Sip and See Trail on episode 647 of Beer Sessions Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And you know, whenever there's a question about a food industry policy, and this has been history for maybe almost 50 years, no, less than that, but, um, but whenever there's been a question about food industry policy or a nutrition advisory, reporters know exactly who to call and who will give them a straight answer. And that's Marion Nessel, the courageous champion of healthy food, social justice, and scientific integrity, as she's been called by Fast Food Nation author Eric Schlosser. But it was often a bumpy road in the beginning with a lot of detours to get to where she is today. Marion Nessel is a Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University in the department she chaired from 1988 to 2003 and from which she retired in September 2017. She is also a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell. She earned a PhD in molecular biology and an MPH, Master's of Public Health, in public health nutrition from the University of California, Berkeley. Previous faculty positions were at Brandeis University and the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. From 1986 to 1988, she was Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Health Services and the editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. Her research and writing examine scientific and socioeconomic influences on food choice and its consequences, emphasizing the role of food industry marketing. And I welcome you, uh, Marion, to the show. And what I also wanted to mention were that um, books, I'm not going to read through the whole list of books, but um, I think everyone is familiar with your seminal work of 2002 Food Politics, which without insult, I have to say, kind of put you on the map, even though amongst other people, you were already there. 
and uh, you have been named the, the well the University of um, the of California School of Public Health at Berkeley named you as a public health hero. Kind of cool, um, and you have so many other accolades and awards. We you know I. You have to read the book to find out, folks, okay? But it's my pleasure to have you here today because this book is just a real treasure. And as you've been called, you've also, you have been called a national treasure. Uh, you help, I feel you help protect us when protection is definitely needed. From food industry, big, you know, we talk about big pharma all the time, but we don't talk about big food industry all the time, and we should. And this is just this book, as I say, it was a bumpy road. It really struck a chord with me um, because at a certain age, I, I there was so much I could identify with, you know, kids at home, not being taken seriously, equal pay, women's rights, the whole the whole ball of wax. But so you tell me a little bit about about your beginnings without going through the whole book, but how you remained so persistent? Well, hi, Linda. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for asking. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think, you know, I, I think it was in my character to try to make the best of whatever situation I was in. Um, I, you know, you don't get to choose your family, mm. and mine was difficult for me. Uh, for lots of reasons that I talk about in the book. And the um, it was, I just tried to do the best I could with what I was confronted with. I was very much a child of my time. Uh, you know, I grew, I was a, born in the Depression uh, to a very poor family. I grew up at a time when options for women were very limited. You were expected to get married and have children, and that was your goal in life. And as I mentioned in the book, my three closest friends in high school had as their lifetime goals to marry a professor, a doctor, and a rabbi, respectively, <laughs> and they did. Uh, and, you know, it seems, still seems amazing to me. I didn't even have those goals. Um, and women, the expectations for women were extremely low, I tried to do what I could within those strictures and didn't succeed very well for a very long time, hence the title, Slow Cooked. <laughs> right. Well, that I wondered how that, you know, what that came about until I started reading the book, and then I got it. I got it. Um, well, you wrote, I mean, here you got, a, you know, your PhD in molecular biology, and your path was going in a couple of different directions, but you wrote that preparing the course in nutrition for the first time was like falling in love. Can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, I think this was yes. when you were right when you were teaching your, the or no right before you wrote the book. Uh, well, the notes became the book Nutrition in Clinical Practice. No, it was quite a bit before then. Um, I was teaching at Brandeis University in the biology department, and the course I was teaching was cell and molecular biology, um, which I enjoyed teaching a lot. It's really interesting stuff. It's what life is about. But it, for students, it was extremely abstract and difficult. And 
they, my department had very unusual rules. One was that you could only teach the same course three times in a row, and then you had to change in order to keep it fresh. And another one was that you had to teach whatever the department needed, whether you knew anything about it or not, because you had a doctorate and you should be able to learn anything better than freshman and sophomore students could. Um, and the students in the biology department were complaining that they weren't getting any human biology. They wanted human biology courses. And so the department offered me at the end of my third semester of teaching cell and molecular biology, they offered me either physiology or nutrition. And I picked nutrition. And I picked nutrition because I was kind of curious about it. Uh, Linus Pauling had just written Vitamin C in the Common Cold. Francis Moore Lappe had just come out with Diet for a Small Planet. The Center for Science and the Public Interest had just been founded and published a book called Food for People, Not for Profit. All of these things were books that I could use in that course, and they were really interesting. And I thought, well, this will be the way that um, I'll teach undergraduate biology to students because they would be able to understand the studies in exactly the same way that I, that I found the studies easy to understand. And the studies were amazing, hmm. unlike molecular biology. The studies were done on small number of subjects, weren't very well controlled. I mean, I tell this story about how I went to read about how the recommended dietary allowance for vitamin C was established. And one of the studies was done on eight male prisoners in a penitentiary in Kansas or some Midwestern state. And during the study, two of the prisoners escaped. This was not a well-controlled <laughs> clinical trial. We're down, to, oh. we're down to six guys now. <laughs> yeah, we're down to six. This is really fun. Students who were having so much, who could not possibly read original research papers in Cell or the Journal of Biological Chemistry, could read these studies and see immediately what was wrong with them and criticize them and do real critical thinking in biology. And I had 50 students in my first class, and they were fantastic. They were really excited about it. And really wanted to read all this stuff. And in those days, students could read original research papers and write papers about them. And it was fabulous to, to teach them. And then in uh, about 20 of them wanted a second semester because they liked it so much. And so I had two semesters in which students taught me what I needed to know about nutrition, really. Um, and then I went on from that. That was the last time I taught undergraduates for a long time because I went on to teach at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, UCSF mm -hmm. School of Medicine in San Francisco and taught, met, taught nutrition to medical students for the next eight years. Uh, so, you know, one thing led to another in those days. Well, and then, and then you wrote your first book, Nutrition, as I mentioned, Nutrition in Clinical Practice. And that, was during the time you were teaching, or just when you after you finished teaching, the medical students, I presume. Um, I'm forgetting the details from the book, but yeah, I am. I mean, I was teaching medical students, and uh, it was clear that medical students didn't get very much nutrition education. So I wrote a book 
for health practitioners, students, medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, who didn't have nutrition classes, which meant all of them, really, um, and sort of summarized everything that I thought was important about clinical nutrition in one small volume. And I have to say something about that volume because it's long out of print and long out of date. It went out of print because the publisher gave up his publishing business and went and went to music school. <laughs> um, but it's also pretty much out of date. But I saw a copy of it on Amazon advertised last year where you could buy a copy of this little paper-bound book that was printed in 1985 for $930. I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe that anybody would spend that kind of money for the, a book that was so out of date. I think somebody must have Googled you. And then, I and then guess. That up. Yeah. Anyway, the book's no longer there. Does that mean that somebody bought it? I, I can't oh my believe goodness. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this, I forgot. Well, first of all, I, I wanted to say that um, in your comments about nutrition and loving it so much when you had been on a different path, although you had talked about loving to cook and learning to cook and spent your time, you know, when you were at home with the kids in between uh, school, cooking and learning to cook. Um, so it's no, uh, I guess, surprise that your memoir, which I didn't read the whole title, the memoir is Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. I mean, People get this if they saw the beginning of the show. Um, did this course in nutrition and, and your love of it, did it sort of set the course for you? Oh, it absolutely did. Because I had the students write papers about some aspect of the diet and health, vitamin C in the common cold, fat and heart disease, uh, fiber and cancer. I mean, anything that they were interested in. And they, uh, you know, I had 50 papers that first semester and the, they were all the same. They all said the studies were used too few subjects. They weren't well controlled. The prisoners escaped. The <laughs> assays weren't good. The, you know, there was this problem and this problem and this problem. And they concluded at the end that it was really impossible to draw firm conclusions from any of the things they had studied about, and they were studying maybe 30 different things. There were some duplications. And that really framed the way I thought about nutrition from then on. I've never looked back. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, nothing that happened after that has changed my view of that. This was real critical thinking in nutrition. It taught me how to criticize uh, the publications, it taught me, first of all, it taught me what was really critically important about understanding why nutrition research is so difficult, which is it's really hard to find out what people eat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's really hard to make overall comments or generalizations about people's eating because diets change so much from day to day and differ so much from individual to individual that it's really, really difficult to do this kind of research. I think it's the most intellectually challenging question in the field of nutrition is what do people eat? And if you don't know what people are eating, it's very hard to say whether what they're eating is affecting their diets. 
or their health in any way, in any particular way. No wonder the studies are so conflicted and so complicated and so, and so subject to interpretation. Right. It's because the basics are so hard to do. And that's a problem that we've not yet solved. Hmm. Except in controlled clinical trials done in metabolic wards where the diets are controlled. And those studies can only be short term, but it's why they're so important. Right. Well, it's interesting because you resisted um, getting your, your master's in public health um, initially. But then you wrote that you realized that it's about how social and political forces determine the health risks of populations, which, and then you're talking about, well, you got to know what they're eating, right? Um, so then you went and you got your, your, you went to the School of Public Health and got your master's there after you had your doctorate in molecular biology. But public health, did that, did that really, didn't you think that was a career changer in a sense? Well, I'd always been interested in public health. It was one of those, I had taken a course, an undergraduate course in public health when I was a sophomore. <clears throat> and it was, it was a course that was so easy for me that I just didn't think it was worth studying. I mean, I had this weird idea that if a subject was easy, it was because it wasn't worth studying. It never occurred to me that it was easy for me because I think like a public health person mm. and that it was a really, really good fit for my interests. Um, and so coming back to public health school uh, was a really good fit for my interests. I resisted going for that reason and also because I didn't, I already had a doctorate. I didn't think I needed a master's degree. Right. It turned out to be enormously useful in coalescing my thinking, in bringing, um, the way I thought about public health nutrition to the surface, in bringing a lot of things together that, um, I was looking at sort of separately and really needed to have brought together so that I had a unified worldview. Plus, it offered me fantastic opportunities. My field work in, during the year I spent in public health school was with the Coalition of Homeless Shelter Providers in San Francisco, which was an education in itself. You can't pay for an education like that. Yeah, yeah. I really learned what it was like to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis people who or as we now call them, unhoused, and why they're unhoused, and why they want to be unhoused rather than being put into shelters, and the kinds of things that they're interested in and what their needs are, particularly the needs of uh, single mothers who were who had children in a, home, a, a, a hotel for single mothers. I mean, it was just an eye-opening experience and a real revelation to me yeah, about right. how, about what an enormous problem this was. And this was right at the beginning right. of the homeless problem. It was in the early 1980s. And then, uh, so that was fantastic. And then I was given this in, unbelievable opportunity to go to Southeast Asia 
for the Agency for International Development to do my block public health field work in Southeast Asia. It was the first time I'd traveled by myself. It was the first time I'd been to Asia. It was the first time I'd ever gone to countries where not only could I not speak the language, I couldn't read the language and understand the street signs. So that, too, was a phenomenal experience in trying to make something like that work. I mean, I, I explain my character as trying to make work the situation that I'm put in. And that those were difficult situations with real barriers and things, problems that had to be overcome that somehow I was able to make work. And I look back on as just fantastic experiences that, you know, as I say, you couldn't pay to, to do something like that. So I think public health is, you know, a wonderful thing to do. I encourage everybody to go to public health school. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, and going to Asia, you never know where, where it's going to lead and what you're going to come out with. I mean, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty phenomenal at the time. But it was it during this time, I and mean, when, when did you first realize that foods rather than nutrients were the important focus. We had talked, you know, you, the talk was all about nutrition, nutrients, and and how much of this and that you need, but you realized that it was it was the actual foods that were Well, important. I think I think the turning point, and and I write about this in the book, the turning point was a conference that I went to on cigarette smoking that was held at the National Cancer Institute in the early 1990s. I was already at NYU by then. And, you know, continuing to write about aspects of nutrition and health and so forth. But at this conference, I heard a, a group of international physicians and scientists who were anti-smoking advocates show slide presentations of cigarette marketing. And they showed presentations of cigarette marketing in remote areas of the world, in developing countries, the jungles of Africa, the high Himalayas. Uh, the, uh, there was one presentation on marketing cigarettes to children that was slide after slide after slide of the Joe Camel character and other ways in which cigarette companies were trying to reach children. And I knew that cigarette companies marketed, and I knew that cigarette companies marketed to children, but I had never paid any attention to it. I had never seen the marketing presented as one example after another, after another, after another, after another, so that at the end of it, you realize how systematic this is. And I walked out of those presentations thinking, we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. We nutritionists should be looking at the way in which companies that are selling products that are not particularly good for us are doing that in a systematic way. And so I started paying attention. And I started did. paying right. attention. Every place I went, I started paying attention to the ways in which food companies were marketing, particularly marketing to children, and started writing articles about it. And I wrote those articles over the next five, six, seven, or eight years. And when the time came when I finally realized that unlike molecular biology, which values research articles and doesn't care about books at all, NYU valued books. And then I was, we now had food studies. Food studies was a humanities fields field. Humanities fields value books. It was time for me to write a book. 
And those, I, I thought, well, I can take those articles and put them together, one example after another. And that, w- that was the genesis of food politics, which came out in 2002 and then subsequently in two later editions, five and ten years later. Yeah. I mean, we are so, you know, I guess inured by the constant billboards and ads and TV commercials and whatever else that, you know, it, we don't really stop and think about what what are they saying? What are they putting in front of us? I remember taking a course that was on feminism and, and marketing and some of the outrageous things that were being, you know, marketed with all these sort of um, subconscious little themes going through them that, you know, unless you stop and really look at it and think about it, you don't know what they're you know what they're what? What are they trying to tell us? Who are they trying to get to? You know, and well, you're same thing with the food, to, right? Yeah, you're not supposed to think about them. Mm-hmm. The, the way it's been explained to me is that if marketing is done well, you don't notice it, or as they put it, it slips below the radar of critical thinking. You absorb it at an unconscious level without really paying attention to it. They don't want you to pay attention to it. Because if you paid attention to it, you would know that you were being marketed to and could resist it. Um, So that was what I did. I just started paying attention. And I had some goals in writing food politics. Um, I, I never, never, never wanted to go to another conference about childhood obesity and hear people talk about how we have to, how are we going to get mothers to feed their children more healthfully? I never wanted to hear that again. What I wanted to hear was everybody at those conferences saying, how are we going to get the food industry to stop marketing junk foods to our kids? How are we going to do that? That's should be our goal, not how we educate mothers about making healthier food choices, but instead changing policy so we stop food companies from marketing to our children. Right, right. Well, advocacy is something that I think has always been in your blood from reading your early, your, the, you know, your memoir of, of your early childhood. I think, I think that's always been there. And fortunately, you've put it to good use, which I which I thank you for. Um, I want to talk about a little bit more about um, food systems uh, when we come back after a really short break. So put that in your head, and we'll talk about that when we come back. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio on HRN. I recently hosted a live podcasting event with local beer and spirits makers from beautiful Somerset County, New Jersey. We spoke on the farm that is home to Flounder Brewery and Belmar Distillery, one of the most beautiful stops along the Sip and See Craft Beverage Trail. To me, those two worlds, brewery and distillery, are extremely complementing businesses, especially in a unique location like this. So it immediately helped this become a destination to have a great experience, whether it's the beer atmosphere we've got going in here on the old barns, or the great experience you can have in there with these incredible cocktails that are created there. It's complementary to each other. You can have two completely different experiences all within a 10-foot walk from each other. Before the event, I was able to tour the area and see the historic Bridge Tender's house along the serene DNR Canal, walk the bike and hiking trails, and take in the lush farmland. Then we settled into the centuries-old Dutch barn turned brewery 
for lively discussion. It was always important for us to create our space, our livelihood that we want to share with everybody else of being a community-centric location. It is what makes us a brewery in this state different from a bar and a restaurant. Um, you know, we're obviously family-friendly here. Um, we have a lot of different groups that have their meetings here during the week. We just really want to become a community hub. You can listen to this episode of Beer Sessions Radio, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Somerset County Tourism for supporting this episode. Learn more about the Sip and See Passport Program at visitsomersetnj.org. That's visit visitsomersetnj.org. And we're back, and I'm talking with Marion Nessel, and she has just written her memoir. It's just come out, and it's on the bookshelves. It's called Slow Cooked, the An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. And Marion, um, there's a term that you said, well, if we're going to be taken seriously, and, well, back up and say about seriously – the study of food in any way, shape, or form was never um, admired or respected by academia. Uh, if you want, somebody wanted to study food history, food, uh, the, the background of food in people's social lives, in how communities were formed, it wasn't really scholarly, and no, you know, no attention would be given to it. Um, you managed to buck the system all along the way and have brought good uh, scholarly and academic attention to food studies. Um, and you talked about the term food systems. I guess I, in getting in getting it to ta be taken seriously because there were so many different systems and studies groups, but when you talk about food systems, uh, talk a little bit about exactly what you mean by that term. Sure, but let me just say something about food studies first, which is that uh, when we started our food studies program at NYU, the first question I got asked was, what is that? Mm -hmm. And why would you want to study about food? And there was, you know, there was a gastronomy program at Boston University Boston, at the right. time, um, and which still exists. Uh, I didn't think gastronomy would work at NYU, but lots of academic programs end with the word studies, French studies, Africana studies, um, science studies, and I thought food studies would work, uh, and it has. And in a sense, we made the field academically responsible because there are probably 60 or 70 universities in the United States that teach food studies in one form or another, and practically every department now has a food course in it. It is amazing. I'm, I'm shocked every time I, you know, I, I go and look at someone's uh, application for something and, and they see where they come from. They're in the food studies department, and, and they'll name this university, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere. I'm saying, what? Wow, when did all that happen? Well, it happened yeah. within the last 25 years. We know exactly <laughs> right. when it happened. And it's, you know, it's really gratifying to yes. me because I think it's a great way to teach anything. Food systems is a relatively new term. It's something that's only been used 
um, frequently within the last five or 10 years. And it refers to everything that happens to a food from the time that it's produced until the time it's consumed and wasted. And what it means is that you can't really understand why people eat the way they do unless you understand the way food is produced. You can't really understand what the problems of um, hunger, malnutrition, food insecurity, obesity, obesity-related chronic diseases, resistance to COVID-19, um, and those kinds of problems, unless you understand the way the, the food system works. And we saw that beautifully illustrated during the COVID-19 pandemic, which if it did any good at all, was to highlight how the food system works and how important the low-wage workers are mm -hmm. in agriculture, in meatpacking plants, in grocery stores, in grocery delivery systems. I mean, that people were really not aware of food supply chains or how the whole low-wage system functions or the fact that you know, farm workers don't have the same kind of labor rules and regulations that other kinds of workers have, all of those things became apparent uh, because people started were forced to look at food systems because they were failing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. Um, so this is the big thing that everybody's teaching now. There are two other things that I think are really new in the whole food area. One of them is what's called triple-duty dietary advising, which is to recommend a diet that is appropriate for reducing hunger, reducing chronic disease, and reducing climate change all at the same time. Hmm. And these are diets that uh, include less meat than we typically consume in the United States and more vegetables than are typically consumed. And then the third is the whole... The whole business about ultra-processed foods, a specific category of processed foods that are industrially produced, uh, can't be made in home kitchens, don't look anything like the foods they came from, and that are very, very strongly associated with chronic disease risk. Uh, and are the kinds of foods that everybody should be eating less of. So these are kind of new concepts in food and nutrition these days, and that's what I'm teaching. Well, I think that's that's tremendous. I mean, yes, you say you retired in 2017, but I, I know. I know you're still there. I know you're still <laughs> teaching. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Still giving lectures, still spelling yeah. off, <laughs> right, right. still but ranting. Wait, you're not still in your office, are you? Um, yes, I've kept my office. Well, I know I walked yes. in one time after you had after you had retired, and I said, "Wait a minute, you're still in your office." And yes, you, I kept I've kept are. my office. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good for I, you. I'm still using it. <laughs> using it. That's good. That's a good term. Well, you know the the. Um, Learning about food systems, and, and that's one thing, because once we learn, then we can try to do something about the problems that exist within them. And that brings in the field of sociology, obviously, and uh, food advocacy. And you, there was a, you had a question one time, I think, or you wrote about it in your book about does food advocacy constitute a social movement? Wow. Now, I don't think you even have to pretend to ask that question because you know it does and some of the what are the some of the biggest biggest issues that you feel you've taken on was it soda was it was it the you know the 
the diet with the less meat? What What do you think was the biggest issue? You mean, you mean of me personally? Um, um, that, well, I mean, yeah, I, that you that because you being the leader in in food advocacy, especially with you know big industry well, food industry. I've taught I've taught courses in food advocacy, and the uh, I was appointed to as a sort of courtesy appointment in the sociology department because I hadn't realized it, but I had been practicing sociology without yes. a license. <laughs> um, and we taught a food movement course in, uh, I taught with a sociologist, a uh, food movement course in the sociology department. Um, and that was the question that the class was was arguing about. I think it's something we still argue about because there are thousands and thousands, literally, uh, of organizations that are working on food issues of one kind or another to try to change the food system to one that is healthier for people, for food workers, uh, for animals, and for food animals, and for the planet. But these groups are not united, and they don't collectively form a force that has much in the way of political clout. And what you're trying to do as a social movement is to get some political traction mm -hmm. so you can make real change. And so what, what confronts the food movement, if you want to call it that, is how do you get the power to get to make real change, uh, even in the area of hunger, which is the one that has the most traction right now. Right. Uh, and to try to do something to get federal policy set up so that we eliminate hunger and food insecurity in the United States. That's the clear goal, or at least get it down to such a small percentage that it becomes a lot easier to deal with. Um, and, and I think we still have a long way to go on, on even that one, let alone taking on chronic disease and uh, weight-related chronic diseases, which now affect Three-quarters of American adults are considered by the CDC to be overweight or obese. Uh, Obesity has become normalized in our society. That's right. Especially among children. And there's very little in the way of federal policy that's addressing that. So the question from an advocacy point of view is how do you take that on? And, of course, I, I think I, I do it in my fashion. Um, I do it through... Uh, the books I write, Soda Politics, which is an essentially an advocacy manual for taking on the soda industry. Um, you know, it's a very big book, and it has case study after case study after case study about how you try to get people to consume fewer soft drinks and less sugar-sweetened beverages because they're so obviously bad for health. And, of course, we've seen a decline in consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, in our country at least. And so that's a win in a way, right. although the calories have been made up for in other ways. Yes. Um, but it's a clear win. And then another of my books, Unsavory Truth, is about how the food industry sponsors food and nutrition research, which somehow, by the most amazing coincidence almost <laughs> invariably comes out with results that they can use in marketing what yeah. a surprise yeah, right well it's the first first thing you do when you read i mean me um or anyone who's you know i guess been trained uh, to <laughs> to read these reports 
is that you go to the bottom line first before you read the the study and say, well, who sponsored this? You know, who go to, paid go to, for yeah, this? Yeah, right. And yeah. you know, and haha, no wonder. Yeah, I mean, if I right. see a if I see a paper that says, for example, sugars really aren't bad for health; they're really okay. Um, that's my first question: is okay, who paid for this one? Bingo. Right. Right. invariably sponsored by the Sugar Association or people who take money from the Sugar Association or something like that. I mean, it's not a one-on-one. There are, in fact, studies that are sponsored by food companies that don't come out with results that are favorable, but they're few and far between, and they're yeah. much harder to find. Yeah, and they, I mean, yes, and they, and there are companies who do take a responsible role, and are, I think before they even sponsored it, probably are ready to retool their, you know, their product. But, uh, but it's interesting. It's it's just makes people aware. Just like your students looking to see <laughs> who the control group was when it was a group of pris- prisoners with one escape, two escapees. I mean, you know, it, you just you got to read these things and find out what you know. Don't base, don't 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 believe everything is true that you read. All right. Um, I would like to move on to something that is is very near and dear to me and that's again you've mentioned the food studies department at NYU but your your career took you um in a lot of places mostly California and and then you were at Brandeis and and then and then in Washington DC of course but suddenly you were back in New York City I say back because you were your early life was there you were born there um but it seemed like getting back to New York City, and uh, as well as getting the mostly getting the appointment at NYU, was somehow written in your future all along. Uh, d- tell me about establishing the food studies department. We know that it wasn't the food studies department when you arrived. Um, just give us a little quick quick background on that. Well, I came to NYU to chair a department of home economics. Um, I was kind of astounded. I didn't even think home economics still existed at the university level. And yet here was um, an ancient department that had been around for a long time. It was still called home economics. Um, It was probably the most neglected department I had ever come across because... um, the previous chair, the the faculty weren't very well paid, the physical facilities were kind of horrible, Um, everybody seemed very complacent about what was going on, and I had been brought in by the administration to change it and to move it not into the 20th century, then please, the 21st century. Um, And I came at a time when NYU was going through a really major uh, transition. Uh, The administration and the board of trustees had decided that it was time for NYU to become a Research One university, to become a first-class institution, and they were willing to put the resources into it to try to make it a really 
important, impressive university that would be very desirable, not just for local New York residents, but for people all over the country. They were building new dormitories. They were setting it up to, uh, to become, to make it a truly international institution. It was a very, very exciting time to arrive at NYU in 1988, which was the year that I came. Um, but I just didn't know how it would work. I was confronted with um, a department with faculty who seemed pretty, well, if they weren't complacent, they didn't seem nearly upset about their situation as I thought they ought to be. I thought they ought to be absolutely outraged Mm. at the condition of the department in which they were working and um, the neglect of the facilities. And, you know, I tell the story of my first week at NYU when... The faculty were all off at a meeting of the American Dietetic Association, and I was left to my own devices, and I went around and started get acquainted visits with people that I thought I ought to meet. I didn't know anybody in New York. Um, And um, (laughs) my meetings all went the same way. People would say, oh, we're so glad you're here. The department really needs you. It's just great that you're here. Um... I hate to bring this up because you only just got here, but there's something I've just got to say. And, okay, shoot. And what they had to say was, your kitchen is dirty. (laughs) Well, I was completely floored. Here I had a doctorate in molecular biology and a master's in public health and nutrition, and I had just been working in Washington as senior nutrition advisor to the Department of Health and Human Services, and I'd come to NYU and was confronted with a dirty kitchen? Excuse me? <laughs> so the third time I heard this, the third time in a row I heard this, I thought, well, I, I have to go take a look. So the kitchen was in another building. I went into, I got off the elevator. I could smell it. Mm-hmm. I walked into the kitchen, and let me tell you, Dirty did not describe what I saw. For one thing, um, there was all of the counters were greasy, and there was ample evidence everywhere of abundant wildlife. It's the only way I can <laughs> wildlife describe is it. kind. <laughs> <laughs> wildlife. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, and the, and that was what I was confronted with was a, a kitchen that was so neglected that nobody seemed to be responsible for keeping it in a state of cleanliness that was acceptable, even though it was old. It was a 20 or 30 year old home economics kitchen that clearly needed a lot of work, but mostly it needed a cleaning. And, you know, I tell the story about how the kitchen was, well, the kitchen was green. It was this avocado green color that was very popular in the 1950s. And I thought, well, okay, I can understand that. And then after it was steam cleaned, I walked into it and I couldn't believe it. The kitchen was blue. I just <laughs> that's couldn't a, believe that's it. a lot of dirt and grease. <laughs> that was a lot of dirt and grease. Um, so that was what I was up against. It was up against, it was really starting from scratch. And then Um, You know, I worked with the faculty, and we gradually were able to eliminate the home economics programs, which didn't have any students in them anyway. And then we had a hotel program that we where we were teaching hotel 
management without a license, which put us in an extremely vulnerable position. And when the university wanted to transfer the hotel program to the School of Continuing Education, we were left with a loss of a million dollars a year in tuition revenue, which put us in a terrible, terrible position. And when the dean asked, um, what are you going to do to replace it? I said, food studies. <laughs> there it was. I was there ready. Was. I had I had been hanging around with Old Ways Preservation and Exchange Trust, which was a group that brought food writers, academics, and chefs together um, around issues having to do with sustainability mm-hmm. and healthy diets and other kinds of good things. And I knew that there was a real interest in food history and food and culture. Um, a food consultant, Clark Wolf, was advising me and had put together an advisory committee that said we should food up our department. We weren't teaching enough about food. I was ready right. when the dean said that. Uh, and, of course, her next question was, what's that? Um, <laughs> and we were off and running. But, right. I mean, in part because the department was in such a vulnerable state, the food studies programs, undergraduate, master's, and doctoral went through all of the necessary approvals in very short order. And Clark Wolf knew Marion Burroughs, who was writing for the New York Times food section at the time, told her about the program, and she wrote about it in the Times the week after the programs were uh, approved by the state. And we had people in our office that afternoon holding the clipping and saying, we've waited all our lives for this program. Yeah, and it's and no so, surprise. So we had a class in the fall. We had a class right that away. Fall. Thank you, wow. New York Times. Wow. Well, you know, power of the press, as you said. Yeah, The power sure. of the press, right. absolutely. Well, for listeners out there who who maybe, you know, have are, have been born after that period of time, to know the, the dearth of opportunity for anyone who wanted to study serious food issues. It was, this was revelatory. And you really set the stage. And as you say, after that, you know, within the past 25 years, it's just been nonstop the number of university programs that have not necessarily followed your lead, but taken their own lead because everyone, you know, is realizing, but you helped you helped get the word out there and that, you know, these programs were, were necessary and needed. And what, you know, what a difference it has made. Well, I like to, I like to think that we made it academically respectable. Right. And the example that I give, well, I have two examples. One is doctoral students. We told our doctoral students they could get degrees in food studies, but they should understand that they would never get jobs at academic institutions because academic institutions are very siloed, and if you don't have a degree in history, you don't get a job in a history department. Mm -hmm. Um, And, oh, never have I been happier about being so wrong in my life. (laughs) All of our doctoral graduates who wanted academic positions have them. Um, And uh, we even have a doctoral graduate who is at an Ivy League institution. Um, One of our graduates is at Yale. Um, in, a, in, an acad- in a tenure-track academic position. So I was wrong about that. 
completely. The other example I like to use is that we ran a seminar series for a while where we had anthropology graduate students who would come from universities all over the Northeast because nobody in their department would advise them about how to write dissertations about food topics. Um, and now anthropology departments everywhere are encouraging their students to write about food. Right. It's really changed. Yes, and, indeed. And, and that's very exciting and very graduate and very very gratifying. And I'd love to think that I had something to do with that. Well, you undoubtedly did. And I think I'm going to, you know, take a stab here at one of the reasons, aside from the, you know, the the quality of the people and the education you were giving, you have never been timid about the media talking to, here you are on a podcast, right? <laughs> and you've been on radio, television, you've given TED, well, no, the equivalent of TED Talks. Did you give a TED Talk? You gave yeah. a, a, some other kind of, what did you give a um, uh, Nobel Talk? Yes, right? Oh, you've given no, TED, I, right? <laughs> no I, was, I was asked to speak at a couple of Nobel Prize symposiums, but, right. uh, yeah, you know, you've yeah. no TED but Talks. Never, but you've never been never been afraid of the media, never been afraid of the press, and encouraged the press to call you. And but the media, but you've you've always been out there for the media to uh, you know to to answer to to interviews and um, discussions. And I think that you know that once again power to the power of the press, and I think it it served you well. Well, and, the media can reach far more people than I can ever reach. Mm -hmm. And my experience with reporters who write about food is that they're really smart. Mm -hmm. um, and they teach me things. They send me articles that I might not otherwise see. They ask me questions I might not otherwise be asked. I find out very quickly from them what people are interested in. And I want them to get their stories right. I'm really happy to be involved in shaping media stories. Um, you know, I, I, I tell the story in the book about my year-long experience working with Marion Burroughs about the stories that she wrote about the withdrawal of the Department of Agriculture's Eating Right Pyramid right. in 1991 and 1992, when I've never had so much fun talking to reporters. It was just, I was a conduit of information to reporters, and as a result, I got quoted in a large number of stories and had an enormous amount of fun with that. Um, well, I am. Yeah. I'm so. I'm so happy that you wrote this memoir and that you put it all down in writing, and I encourage people to to take a look at it and read it. It's you'll get all these and more stories. There are so many good stories in it, and uh, you know it, it takes it takes it takes from the beginning of you growing up and and then some of the struggles you faced into an just an. And very incredible career that many of us can identify with and applaud and uh, and thank you for because you've made a difference in in my life. I know you've made a difference in many people's lives and in the health of the United States and the rest of the world. We hope as well. Again, the memoir is called "Slow Cooked: An Unexpected Life in Food Politics" by Marion Nessel. Marion, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. All right, and thank you for listening. This has been, again, another Taste of the Past.
A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.